Welcome to the Metro Church Podcast. We are a warm and vibrant gospel-centered church with campuses in the Philadelphia region, passionate about the gospel, community, and discipleship. If you'd like to learn more about joining our community or would like to give to our ministry, please visit us at metrophilly.org. Today's scripture reading comes from excerpts from the book of 2 Corinthians, chapters 8 through 9. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. Verse 8. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you might, through his poverty, become rich. And here is my advice about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now, finish the work, so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it, according to your means. Verse 13. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be equality, as it is written, He who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. Chapter 9, verse 6. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Today marks the end of the series, and it's going to be a shorter sermon. We're going to have an open mic session soon after. But I hope that uh, through this series, you can grasp the reality that we need to actively address the area of, uh, uh, the area of love, our love for money. And, and scholars say this. Scholars say today that it's because we lost a sense of God. We've lost the, the experience of God. And as a result, we've lost transcendent purpose, transcendent meaning. We've lost a sense of being plugged into a story, uh, the story to which our own lives are tied. So we're aimlessly accumulating wealth, and we're aimlessly spending wealth. But the Apostle Paul says, and this passage explains it, that there is a story. There is a story to which we can be tied. 
And what you see at the end of that story will shape how you apply your wealth, whether it's going to be aimless and selfless, uh, selfish and meaningless, or whether it's going to be meaningful. But if you want to be meaningful, you're going to need three things. And this passage addresses that. You're going to need to see the spiritual gap, the key to transformation, and then the bridge to get across that gap. The spiritual gap the key to transformation, and then the bridge to get across. First, we're going to look at the gap. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. The church in Corinth, or Corinth by, by, uh, as, a, as a city, is one of the most flourishing cities in the Roman Empire during those ancient times. It was considered the financial capital of the Roman Empire. So much like New York City is today uh, in our world, that was the city of Corinth for the Roman Empire in ancient times. And the Apostle Paul's writing to this church in Corinth, to the church. He's literally running a fundraising campaign, a collection. So, you know, that, the thing that we're running is a hill of beans. Paul is, is raising funds for the sake of uh, the church. He's running a collection because there was a famine in Judea. And he wanted all the churches in Asia and Greece to contribute for the sake of the people who were impacted by the famine. But in chapter 8, verse 8, he says... I'm not commanding you to do this. Remember, Paul's an apostle. He was one who was sent by God, but he never says, you need to do this, you better do this. But what he does say over and over is, I want you to give because you want to give. In chapter 8, verse 11, he says, I want to see an eager willingness. In chapter 9, verse 7, he says, I don't want you to do this with reluctance or, or under compulsion. Now think about this. The apostle Paul never says, uh, I'm not going to command you, if you're single, uh, to be sexually pure. I want you to want to be sexually pure. That's not what he says. He never says that. He's very, very clear. He's adamant about sexual purity. Regarding adultery, Paul never says, I'm not going to command you. I want you to desire to be faithful to your spouse. No, he never does that. He's very direct, very adamant about uh, the command to be faithful to our spouses. Well, then why here? Why, when it comes to money, does he say, I'm not going to command you? And the answer, unlike other sins, is, for instance, like sexual liberty or adultery, the love of money doesn't have a line where if you cross that line, oh, now you're greedy. With sex, there's a line. With adultery, there's a line. But with uh, greed, there's no line. So in chapter 8, verse 8, Paul says, I'm not commanding you, but... I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. Who are these others that Paul's talking about? So if you go all the way back to the first part of this passage that we read, chapter 8, verses 1 to 4, Paul refers to these Macedonian churches. These are churches that were much poorer sections than Corinth. Corinth, Corinth was very wealthy. He refers to these Macedonian churches in these poor areas, these poor towns. They've already given. Verses 1 to 4, now, and now brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, remember they were a very poor area, out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and extreme poverty welled up in, with rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service. Then he says in verse 8, 
I want to test down the sincerity of your love. Notice he doesn't say, I want to test the extent of your love or I want to test the intensity of your love. He's not saying, I want to see how much you love. That's not what he's saying. In other words, you know, because the Macedonians, they gave more, they must love more. No, that's not what he says. But what he does say is, I want to test how true your love is. I want to test the authenticity of your love. And in verse 1, he actually says, I want you to know about the grace that God has given them. Paul doesn't say the Macedonian churches, that these churches had some supernatural ability uh, to, to sacrifice, that they had some supernatural ability or some gift to be able to just sacrifice, even in extreme poverty. He just says, well, they have the grace of God in their lives. In other words, they're Christians. That's what he says. And because they're Christians, because of the gospel, there's a joy and a sincerity. Their love is real. Their love is true. There's this earnestness. There's a proactive desire to give, give their wealth away to the degree that it actually impacts their own lifestyle. And so here's the question we have to ask. Is your love real? Is your love sincere? A lot of people here over the years, after being a pastor here for 11 years, a lot of people who are here will say, well, Metro is my second home. I love this church. I love this body. I love this community. But what does that actually mean practically on the ground? Because if you can't deal with the idea of losing a little bit of your wealth because of a little bit of discomfort that that causes, well, that's a faith issue. That's what Paul's saying here. That's a faith issue. And it's because you don't see the end of the story. You don't trust the end of the story. You may know and you may have heard that there is an end to the story, but you don't see it. You don't trust it. That's the gap. There's a gap. It's a gap in a way that we view giving compared to what the Bible says is normative. Now, secondly, then what's the key to transformation? What's the key to crossing that gap? In, in chapter 8, verses 13 to 15, Paul gives us an illustration that he actually pulls from the Old Testament. And he says this. He says, Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. Now, he's, he's pointing to something here. At the present time, your plenty supply is what they need so that in turn, their plenty supply is what you need. Then there will be equality as it is written. Then he quotes from Exodus chapter 16. He goes all the way to the Old Testament in the book of Exodus chapter 16. He who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. What does that mean? Paul's reminding us of a time when the people of God, at one point they were slaves in Egypt. They were rescued, redeemed out of slavery from Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea. They were entering now into the wilderness. There was nothing to eat. They were hungry. So what did God do? He provided for them. He sent them food. He gave them manna. It appeared on the ground every morning. The people had to gather this manna each morning. Now think about this. Because it was a physical activity, there were some people who were just better at gathering. There were some people who were just going to gather more naturally than other people. We all went out there and we're called to gather food in the, you know, that, that grows in the morning. Some of us are just naturally going to be better than other people, right? And uh, chapter 16 of Exodus says, no matter how much you gathered, they would pull it all together and then they would redistribute it to everyone as they had need. They would give it to every family as they needed, and everybody ate their fill. Now, the Apostle Paul is taking principles from that 
narrative, that scenario in Exodus 16, and he's applying it today in our circumstances, and he's saying that the way that the ancients handled manna is how we are called to handle our wealth. Remember, with manna, if you hoarded that manna, if you kept it even longer than a day, what would happen? It would start to rot. So what is the Apostle Paul saying? One, manna is a gift. It is a provision of God. And Paul is calling us to look at our wealth as a gift, a provision of God. Just like that. You may be doing the work. You may be doing the gathering. But who gives it to you? It's God. It's a gift. Secondly, Paul's saying, if you hoard that wealth, if you keep more than you should, if you keep more than you need, your life is going to start to decay. It's going to start to rot. And thirdly, then how do you know how much to keep? In ancient times, you brought that manna together, you pulled it together, and then you redistributed it. You divided it up. In other words, they were all in the context of community, and they kept each other accountable. You need to be with community, a community that keeps you accountable. Even in the church, think about this. Even in the church, if you're around people who don't like to give, that's what's going to be normal to you. If you're around people who love to give, that's going to be normal to you. But if, if you're around people who don't like to give, if you're around more people outside the church and they're not in the habit of giving, that's going to be normal to you. What happens? One, you're never, ever going to feel greedy. It's going to be normal. And two, this is the aimless living and spending that scholars are talking about when they look at our society. Now, in the church, you have every level of society represented. You have people who gather much, and you have people who gather less. But because you're engaging with each other and you're committed to each other and you're sharing with each other and you're involving yourself with them, they're involving themselves in your life, you're praying with them and for them and they're praying with you and for you. And then what happens is over time, your values are challenged. Your view of wealth, your view of money and how you spend it, how you manage it, how you handle it, it's going to be shaped by, you know, your view of your wealth, your money is going to be shaped by the community that's around you. The key to transformation the key is gospel community. Where do you get the power then that charges and, and, and shapes gospel community in a way uh, where they're empowered to give? That's the third point. What's the bridge? Chapter 9, Paul says, remember this. Whoever sows sparingly also will reap sparingly. He's using a farming metaphor. He's saying you need to think of your wealth you need to think of your money like seed. The more seed you scatter, the greater the potential harvest. In other words, the more you're able to give your wealth away, the more fruit you could potentially bear, the greater the harvest, the greater the potential harvest. But think about this. What is the harvest that he's talking about? Because what the passage sounds like is, sounds like what God is promising is that the more I give, the more I get back from God. That is what we call the prosperity gospel. It's a false doctrine. That's not what the Apostle Paul is saying. Why? Because the text also says, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, having all you need. Notice, Paul doesn't say that God will give you everything you desire. He doesn't say, well, God will give you everything you want. He says, having all you need. God's going to provide for your every need just like he did for the ancient Israelites with manna. So what is the harvest? In verse 10, Paul says, 
Now he who, he who supplies seed, now he, God, who supplies seed, that is your wealth, that's a metaphor for your money, to the sower who is you, right? As God supplies the seed to you, and as he supplies bread for food, he will also supply and increase your store of seed. When you have a store of seed, he's saying that's intended for you to scatter to other people. That will enlarge your, the harvest of your righteousness. What does that mean? The Apostle Paul is referring to Psalm 112. In fact, he quotes Psalm 112 when he says, He's scattered abroad, his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Psalm 112 is about a man who uses his wealth to restore creation. What does that mean? If you look around, the fabric of society, rich and poor, educated and uneducated, the fabric of society, the various races uh, that make up a city, it's being torn apart. It's tearing apart. Creation, I mean, our bodies, for instance, nature is falling apart. It's spreading out into entropy. It's falling apart. But, but this man is giving away his wealth. And what is he doing with his wealth? Well, Psalm 112 says he's, he's using it to lift up the poor. He's using it to feed the hungry. He's using it to heal the sick. And so he's using his wealth, his power, to reweave the fabric of society. He's restoring justice. He's restoring order. That's what's going to be at the end of the story. So this man sees the end of the story, and he's reweaving creation around him, using his power, using his strength, using his wealth. His righteousness endures. And so in 2 Peter chapter 3, in the New Testament, the Apostle Peter, he says, one day there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. We're going to be filled with righteousness. That means that one day, everything that is sad, everything that is broken is going to be made whole again. Everything that is broken will be rewoven, will be integrated again perfectly. That means the rich will dwell with the poor. They're going to be together. The nations of the world are going to come together. They're going to be knit together again. The educated and the uneducated will be able to come together hand in hand and be together again. Right now, the world is becoming more and more fragmented. I mean, if you read scholars and social commentators today, they'll tell you we are living in the most fragmented society in the history of the world. Right now, the world is becoming more and more fragmented. Why? Because God and man themselves are fragmented. There's this deep chasm between God and his people because of our sin. But one day, the, the Apostle Peter says, one day there's going to be a bridge and we're going to be made whole. And that's going to bring everyone together. Every race, every nation is going to be rewoven together again. That means there's no more poverty. There's going to be no more disease, no more death. And you, you will experience your fullest potential. Now, what does that have anything to do with being generous? When Jesus Christ was here on earth, what did he do? What were his miracles about? because they weren't random. What did he do with his power? He healed the sick. He fed the hungry. He, he freed the leper. He gave them sight. The blind received sight. Why? Because the miracles, they had a purpose. They pointed to something. They were signs. 
Through the miracles, Jesus was showing us, one, that the world is broken. Sin has brought death and decay. We're not supposed to get sick. We're not supposed to be hungry. We're not supposed to uh, be leprous or have diseases. We're not supposed to be blind. You see, we're not supposed to die. We're not supposed to experience injustice or, or oppression. But the kingdom of God is here and it's coming. And one day, everything broken, everything wrong, Everything sad is going to be undone. It's going to be upended. It's going to be reversed. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the king is coming? Secondly, so when you give your wealth away, when you give your money away, what are you doing? You're actually helping the sick. You're helping uh, the outcasts, the lepers. They were outcasts. You're helping the, the lepers. You're helping the sick. You're helping the disease. You're helping the poor. You're helping the hungry. You're helping the blind. It's the miracles. You're doing exactly what Jesus did with his power uh, in the ancient times when he was here on earth. And so what that means is that you are placing your story into the greater story of Jesus. You are taking your story using your power and your wealth and you are placing it to the greater story of the gospel. And your story, which was once aimless, there was aimless spending, aimless accumulation. Now it's being restored with purpose, and that is real power. So your wealth then becomes a sign, a pointer of the coming of Jesus. And you're contributing to that harvest, you see? You're contributing to the harvest. Well, that means that your view of the end of the story matters. And so Paul says, well, there it is, chapter 8, verse 9. What's the bridge? He says it's the gospel. If the key to transformation is being in gospel community, the bridge to get there is the gospel. You see, Paul says, For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. I mean, this is the Apostle Paul. This is his ground for his reason for saying everything he's saying. This is, this is his indicative for why, why we would give anything at all. Think about this. How is Jesus going to create the new heavens and the new earth? How is he going to be the man in Psalm 112 that's going to reweave and restore creation? On the cross, Jesus Christ suffered the ultimate injustice. Jesus Christ suffered the ultimate oppression. He took on the ultimate sickness, the ultimate hunger. He was, he was cast out. So he took on the ultimate outcastness. And he wasn't just cast out from people. When he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's saying, I've been cast out from the living. I've been cast out from the Father's heart. I've been cast out from the, the central core of my, of my motivations, of my heart, of my love. I, and so now I'm really longing. I'm really thirsting. And so he says, I thirst. Now he's absorbing the ultimate disease where there's no cure. That is the disease of our sin. And so because he's lost the Father and he's taken on our disease, He's suffering the ultimate poverty. This is Jesus Christ, filled with righteousness, and yet he dies. So the cross really becomes the place of ultimate injustice, an ultimate oppression, an ultimate poverty. He lost the Father, and so he says, I'm poor. Why did he do it? And the Apostle Paul explains, to make us rich, ultimately rich. So Jesus Christ became poor. He bought our freedom 
with his poverty. He gave us his power. He gave us bread of life. He becomes our bread of life. He becomes our manna. And it's not just enough so we can get through the day. A lot of us think that God gives us just enough strength. God calls us to live every day. But he gives it to us abundantly, lavishes his grace, overflowing grace. His righteousness endures. That's the story. It's the story of the gospel. It's the only thing that can heal you from the decay and the rot and the death of your greed. Paul says, I'm not commanding you because he knows he doesn't have to. He doesn't have to command us because he knows if we get what Jesus did for us, if we get the gospel, then we know that our wealth is a gift and a provision from God that can be used to scatter to others. And so on the cross, Jesus Christ was ripped apart. He was torn apart. He was disintegrated from his people, from the Father. Why? So that we could be woven right into his story. Jesus Christ was ripped apart so we can be woven into the story of the gospel. That's why we would want to give. That's why we would want to contribute to the harvest of righteousness. That's what's going to be at the end of the story. Ultimate justice, ultimate freedom, ultimate joy and delight. That's what's going to be at the end of the story. Look what happened to Jesus. Through his sacrifice, he was glorified. And now he's returning. We're about to start our series on the Advent, the birth of Jesus. The word Advent means coming. He's coming. It's already started. Do you see it? Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the Metro Church Podcast. If you were encouraged by today's teaching and are looking for a gospel community, we invite you to join us. To learn more, visit metrophilly.org. To give, visit metrophilly.org give.